Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this one is a special one. Ryan Martin is a guy I first met about eight months ago. At the time he was getting ready to bike across Canada and raise funds for mental health and I was excited to share whatever bit of experience I could with him because I'd done the exact same thing two years before. So Ryan is from Guelph and had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but he was working in Waterloo, where I was from, and so we sat down one day after work and hit it off, and that could have easily just been that. Off he went on the road, and I very quickly learned just how special he was. Before he'd even left for the ride, he'd already raised more money than I ever did, and by the time his ride finished, he had raised over $120,000 for mental health initiatives in Canada. Fundraising is not an easy thing to do, and his story took off. He was honest, he was genuine, and he wasn't afraid to let you into what it was like to live with bipolar, what it's like every day. Nowadays, he's the national lead for youth advocacy at the Canadian Mental Health Association. He is still connecting with people every day, and he is a real inspiration. Here's his story. I thought one way to start. Back in March, you had shared a picture of yourself and, and described yourself as a biker, skier, kiteboarder, golfer, friend, brother, son, and guy with bipolar. And the order there, yeah. to me, feels uh, deliberate. Uh, tell me about that that kind of distinction between all of those things and, and that just being a, a part of it. I think that, that was just kind of one thing I wanted to emphasize with people is just like, hey, this is who I am and who I am consists of kiteboarder, golfers, gear, whatever. And also the fact that I have a, an illness and it's it's bipolar disorder. And it was just, yeah, just a way for people to really understand who I am. And I thought that was a good way to just normalize it. It's like, hey, look, you know what? This is what makes me who I am and bipolar is one of them. So I don't really care about it. It's just something that I have that I deal with. Yeah. And I try to just make it, you know, way that people could just see like, yeah, you know what? That is just part of who he is. He's not he's not bipolar Ryan. He's Ryan, you know, right. who has bipolar and he also has a lot of other things that he that, that are part of his life. So that was kind of my goal there. Putting it yeah. in its proper place in terms of the, the bigger picture of your life and everything that you do and, and what makes you who you are. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's important for everyone with mental illness is like you kind of can get caught up in like I am depressed. I, I have anxiety and that's kind of the biggest way you define yourself. But that's just not a good way to think. I think that's super irrational because mental illness is just a part of who you are. You know, we always hear like comparisons to physical illness, which we've all heard a thousand times. But if you have arthritis, it doesn't mean you are arthritis. Yeah, right. You know, it's the same with mental illness. So, Before we get to talking about the ride, and I think we can talk for uh, a long time about the yeah, ride. Yeah, we could. Oh, my God. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, but I'd like to get a sense of who you are and who you were before the, all of these events kind of cascaded into doing the ride and and the work that you do today. Maybe talk a bit about what you were like growing up first. I want to emphasize something, though. It's like I'm starting to realize that I'm still the same person. Yes. As, as this whole journey, like, I don't know, I'm still the same person, but things that change is your mindset towards everything, right? It's like how much you're willing to accept what's going on, how much you're willing to own it, and how much you're willing to be proactive about the whole situation. Like that, 
has what's changed for me, but I'm still the same person. You know, when I was younger, I had lots of great friends, like being social was never an issue, but I, but I, I felt like I had social anxiety and I just would have like these mood swings that would come out of nowhere. Like I'd feel really good and then I'd feel really bad. And I'd, and it was always like this extreme, like it's always, people always tell me, or when I was early on, people would be like, yo, like my mom would be like, right, we all feel sad. We all feel good. But I just felt like really good and I felt really bad. Mm-hmm. And it was just constant fluctuation. And then over the years, yeah, I just started becoming, it started affecting me more and more. The social anxiety was definitely like present in, in high school. Not so much like the mood swings go up going down too low. But then when I got to university, like it was just funny. I got into like the university of my dreams, program of my dreams, yeah. living with my best friends. Yeah, I, I did it really well in school. Everything was going great. But when I got to university, I noticed that I was starting to experience like, these really bad lows. And I thought they were from like low self-esteem, low confidence, stuff like that. So I was just being really hard on myself. Like I remember reading articles being like how to deal with loneliness or how to deal with low self-esteem, how to deal with social anxiety. But over time, I just realized that those were kind of the surface level issues of what was happening Mm -hmm. at a much deeper level. But yeah, university was, again, great, like a lot of great friends and was very social and did really well in school and got a lot of great jobs during my co-op program and living with my best friends again and had a girlfriend and traveled and all that kind of stuff. But just during all that, there was just a lot of ups and downs going on inside my head. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. Like It was like, it was super hard. Like getting to like points where you're like so you know, hope, hopeless and helpless and just like at dark times. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think the problem at that point in my life was like, I didn't know, I wasn't smart about it. I didn't know how to manage my mental health. Not to say that I'm like a guru of managing <laughs> right now, but I'm, I'm smarter. And back then it was like, okay, I feel social anxiety. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try and solve social anxiety. So I took like a, an online social anxiety course yeah. and learned all these tools and they worked so well for social anxiety, and they still do. But when my mood would change to depression, I'd be like, okay, great, and I'll whip out these these tools that I've learned that solve my mental health. Yeah. And I whip them out, and they don't do anything. And I'm like, oh, crap, like, now what? Now I'm screwed. Now I'm, now I'm sliding into a dark place again because I don't have any tools. And then I'd be like, okay, well, then I have depression. So then let's find tools for depression. So I do a bunch of research, and, you know, for example, I'd find – you know, like watching a funny TV show helps with depression, right? So just kind of boost your mood. It's a fun thing to do or like eat some comfort food. You know, those things I like doing, like I did them this week, it's just, just like on Monday when I'm in that mood, those help just kind of like boost my mood a little bit and help ride it out. But then I'd be like, okay, great. Here's these tools that help help solve my issues. And then my mood would change. would go back to anxiety or irritability and I'd try them and they wouldn't work. So every time they wouldn't work, I'd just scrape them. I, I would just ditch them. Okay, these don't work. And I do therapy and I learn new tools. They would work for a while, it wouldn't work. And then I do, you know, read books, learn some things that work for a little while, it wouldn't work. So it was like this so many years of just like huge optimism followed by huge disappointment. Yeah. And there's just a constant this this cycle of, of that. And so eventually I had like a massive breakdown a year and a half ago. Went to the hospital, got diagnosed like ER, it was like in a really high risk state. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my for my well-being and I got diagnosed with like generalized anxiety disorder 
And um, they put me on like antidepressants and all these kind of things. So the next morning I woke up, I was like, great, okay. Well, then I have generalized anxiety disorder. This is what I deal with. And um, I was like, I want to tell people, like, I'm sick of hiding this. So I texted like my five best friends, like a message of what I've been dealing with and what's happened last night. I've been diagnosed. And they all came back with like so much support and love. And it was just amazing. Yeah. So I was like, well, that felt good. I'm going to tell more people. So I texted like, my other friends and my family and my sister's friends, my parents' friends, my coworkers. I told the founders of my company and the support, the support was just amazing. And I was just like, wow, like that feels so good. I felt clear mentally. I said, well, maybe if I'm just open about my mental health, that's all it's going to take for me. You know, it's just, it's going to make all this go away. And then, yeah, like a week later, everything came back. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what what else could I possibly do to manage my mental health? I've spent years learning all these tools. I've done therapy. I've done antidepressants previous to that session with them. Yeah. Um, I've opened up to everyone. Everyone knows. I have a support system. And nothing. And I was so unstable. Yeah. And um, so like a couple weeks after I told everyone, I got diagnosed with bipolar type 2. And that was tough to digest yeah and but i came to terms with it you know it's like what we were talking about earlier it's like you know you just feel like you are bipolar like that's such a big word like bipolar you know it gets thrown around you know with words like psych wards and yeah. schizophrenia because it's a it's a serious mental illness and it was hard to accept but i eventually came to terms with it i got on mood disorder medication really intense medications that were really uh just changing the way changing the chemistry of your brain really yeah, yeah and they made everything worse so i was doing that for like eight months trying new medications and therapies and everything just trying to scrape by and yeah it was a hard time yeah and and then it's pretty much last like christmas of 2017 like last winter i just came to a place where i was like i'm nowhere near stable but I'm more accepting and more aware of what's happening. I did some good therapy, like dialectical behavioral therapy. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm ready to start telling people about bipolar. And I really want to start helping people. And so I was like, okay, how can I do this? I've always wanted to bike across Canada. I know I'm kind of summarizing everything here, but it's just <laughs> kind of the transition of the story. Yeah. But we can go into more detail. But I was just like, you know what? I'm ready to start talking about it. And that was where the idea of the ride kind of came up and, and sharing my story to help people and raising money and helping myself. Yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. So. Good, good, good. Sounds good. Uh, well, you've done kind of my work for me because I was trying to think before talking to you about how to how best to summarize the before period. I listened to uh, your interview with Ben Finelli his Heroic Minds podcast, and I would definitely recommend anybody to listen to that one as well. That gives a much kind of fuller picture of the the before, and and because yeah. that that was all before, all before the ride, and so it was a, a, yeah. a good picture of who you are and and what got you to that stage. Before we get yeah. into the ride, though, I mean, for some people, just finding a, a a definition, a diagnosis, can be such a relief to to hear, oh, this is what I'm dealing with, and and for mm-hmm. you, it was more of a challenge. It was like. Yeah, you you were told first a few like earlier in your kind of in your story that maybe bipolar was the answer and didn't want to hear it at the time, 
And then was told it again later on. And again, I, I don't want that to be the answer. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me about maybe coming to terms with that and, and kind of putting it in a healthy perspective. Yeah, what I've learned about mental illnesses is that it doesn't even matter what the, what the word is, yeah. you know. It's like bipolar for me is irrelevant. Well, now it is. I see it as I... I experience extreme highs and extreme lows yeah. and everywhere in between is a mix of anxiety and depression and irritability and social anxiety and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, I don't even, I mean, maybe that's important for someone with like schizophrenia where like the diagnosis is crucial. Like I'm not saying the diagnosis isn't important, but in terms of you as a person trying to accept what's happening, yeah. like I just try to think about what do I feel like? What do I deal with? Yeah. I don't deal with bipolar. I deal with, you know, highs and lows and anxieties and, and suicidal thoughts and all that kind of stuff. So let's just focus on that. And how do I manage that? Yeah. And that's allowed me to really just forget about the stigma associated with bipolar Yeah. and just become like more, uh, accepting. And I'm so relaxed about it now. I can talk about it with anyone Yeah. because I don't like when you break it down like that for me and, and, how do I actually feel? I don't feel bipolar. I feel these moods. Sure. Yeah. And that takes away the sting of the illness, the diagnosis you have. Mm-hmm. So if you have, you know, GAD, you know, okay, I have anxiety in these parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Then it's not as it's not as much of a sting when you say the word GAD. Or for me, it's bipolar. Yeah. You mentioned being able to talk about. I mean, you are talking about it all pretty openly now. I think one of the hardest things for people to do is to be able to get to that first step of being able to talk about whatever they're going through. Yeah. Uh, you've described that as being the ultimate vulnerability, but also the most liberating and empowering thing that you can do. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that? It's like, I, I like to think of it as like the sting um, of, of a mental illness. Like when you deal with something on your own, even anxiety and depression, I've got, I've I'm so deep into my mental health journey now that like, Anxiety, depression mean nothing. Like I can say that a bajillion times, not feel any sort of emotion. But when I was first in university, seeing a counselor, she's like, I think you have anxiety. And I was like, whoa, like pump the brakes. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? But the more you talk about it, the more times you say the word I have anxiety or the phrase I have anxiety or the word anxiety or depression or bipolar or OCD or, or PTSD or BPD, all these acronyms. The more you say that, the more comfortable you get, like mentally, just being like, okay, like the sting gets chipped away every time. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, the more you talk about it, the more you see that people are there to support you. The more you talk about it, the more you learn from other people's experiences. The more you talk about it, like it's only good to talk about it, unless you're you have a complete, you know, horrible person in your life that's going to judge you. And, and that type of thing, when you start talking about, like, they're not even worth your time. Like, if 99% of the people I feel, I hope, will come back with love and support. And so that makes you stronger. That empowers you to manage your mental health. Your support system is bigger. So, like, talking about it is the most important thing, uh, aside from just being aware of what's happening. Well, has has that been a process for you of, of talking about it? Have that Has that changed the people that you do spend time with versus the people that you still choose to keep in your life? Like, are there people that you know that 
I'm really not going to not not like saying this specific person I'm I'm done with this person but like ha, no. has that been a process of okay I need to figure out who's going to be uh, helpful for me to be around and who isn't Yeah I I like I haven't had a single person come back with me with like judgment or you know criticism or whatever that I know of but if they did they're not worth being in my life it's like why would like if I'm going to be around someone that makes me feel worse about my mental health like it's hard enough to manage your mental health when people are supporting you. So if someone's not going to support me and judge me, then like, see you later. Like you're not even, I'm not even going to spend time to acknowledge you. Like you're, you're out of my life. It's just not, it's not fair to yourself. Let's talk about the bike ride. You, you kind of, (laughs) one of the kernels for this, you were on a trip, a skiing trip in British Columbia and talking to the owner of a a sort of a small backcountry place. Yeah. Uh, What did he tell you? that maybe propelled the idea farther along to to want to do this it's really simple i was really feeling motivated about my rags i talked to some people in vancouver before a couple days before that ski trip and they're i tell them about my ride and they're like oh that sounds amazing and amazing and i'd already been thinking about this beforehand when i wanted to start helping people and talking about bipolar so it really was the final push though when i was at this little ski lodge and a bunch of family and friends and I was talking to the owner of the lodge and his name is Brad and he was like the most down to earth genuine person and he 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 runs like a really small backcountry ski operation mm-hmm. and I was talking to him I was like you know are you gonna do this forever or like does it make you happy like you love doing this he's like I absolutely love doing it I stop enjoying it I'm gonna move on to the next thing because life is too short to not do what makes you happy and something just I had like that just struck a chord huge chord in me and I said what am I doing like I don't like this job is fine I'm working at but like I know that this journey this this ride this initiative is gonna be so good for me and for other people like I have to do this like if life is too short to to not do these things that are on your mind all the time Mm -hmm. and so I I literally I left that lodge and I was on the plane a ride home back to Toronto a couple days later and I, I, I got my phone out. I still have it. I typed like a huge essay on my phone, like a little in the note app. And pretty much just saying like, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm doing it. And and, and yeah. And so I, I passed my phone over to my dad and my sister sitting beside me. And they were like, okay, like I get it. And then I came home and I was like, all right, mom. She was on the couch. I was like, I want you to read this. I don't want you to say anything until you're finished. And I gave her the phone. And it just like waited, like like sitting like you know on the, on my counter, like looking at her. And she said, "Okay, you know I, this this terrifies me, but like I know you need to do this." Yeah. And that was the start. I didn't turn back. I didn't look back from then. I didn't doubt it. There was one hundred percent commitment from that point on. And that was that was in that was like in February, yeah, March. Yeah. Was she was your mom the final decision maker? Is if she if she says no, is that it? <laughs> Plan is gone or <laughs> No, I just I mean I really she's like she's like my partner in crime. Yeah. And it would have been hard for her to not be cool with it, yeah. but I, I probably still would have done it. <laughs> of course. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So you you uh the plan is in motion. I don't know when along the chronology this happens, but a friend sends you a message. If it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that and then how that continued to have significance throughout your ride to come? Yeah, that was kind of 
during my like preparation, getting close when I was actually leaving, and she's like a really close friend who has a lot of lived experience with mental illnesses and that type of thing. And she just sent me this message like, Ryan, like I'm so excited for you. It's gonna be amazing. But like, here's something that I want you to remember is, you know, if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. And I didn't really, I thought about that phrase a lot for like the first couple of weeks of my ride, like going through BC and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I kind of forgot about it. But that, that mindset never left me the entire ride. I just felt like I was so resilient and not to like boost myself, but like I had to be like, I was, you know, pushed to my limits and even day to day, it's like managing my, my bipolar, like mm-hmm. the highs and lows, the anxiety, the irritability, the depression, even not when I'm in my crisis situation, it was a challenge, obviously, like it's really, really hard and, you know, wake up in the morning and go to bed at night kind of thing, just sit there and think about how hard this, how hard this is. But, you know, you gotta, you gotta push through this because it, it, because if you don't push through it, it won't actually change you. It won't change your mindset on mental health. It won't change your confidence, your resiliency moving forward. So like do this for you and it won't change other people's lives. Like if I don't keep going here, sure, I've made an impact already wherever I was in that point at that point. But if I keep going, I'll, I'll change other people too and I'll make a difference. So there's just that, that motto was really a big part of my ride of, of keep going and keep going. You know, if I got to the point where I was like, you know, it was not safe to keep going or my, my health was at risk and I would have obviously backed yeah. off, but I knew that I had to kind of keep pushing to make a change. You did this ride by yourself. Was that deliberate? Was there plans of maybe somebody else coming along with you or having support vehicle or a team? Uh, or was this, a, no, I want to do this myself? Uh, it's such a, it's just a funny topic because... I mean, I even talking to you before we left and like I like I envisioned this is like my vision of this trip was like Ryan camping every night, full gear on his bike, yeah. no support, you know, making my own meals, yeah, doing it on a budget and like just like getting that true experience. And my dad was like, Yeah, I want to join you in BC and my initial thought was like, I don't know, like I was kinda of frustrated. I was like, No, like this is I wanna I wanna do this on my own. Like I don't want anyone else to like help me. Yeah. And then my mom was like, yeah, I want to join you. Oh, like, I just want to, I want to prove myself. I want to live up to my expectations yeah. for this trip. And my sister's like, I want to join you in PEI. My dad's like, I want to join you again in Ontario. And I'm like, all right, hold on. Like, <laughs> this is like, I have a vision for this and it's to do it independent or solo. And I was so stubborn and because I had this vision, you know, like camping, cooking, like this is how it's supposed to be when you bike across Canada. And my parents convinced me to not start camping until Edmonton because my doctor, my psychiatrist said I shouldn't even go on the ride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, what happens if you have a, a breakdown on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and you're camping at the middle of the night in the, in the bush or something? It's really like, okay, like I'll start camping in, in Edmonton once I've been on the road for a month and I'm getting more comfortable biking. So then I got to Edmonton. My dad met me actually in, in uh, Kamloops, British Columbia and, I got there and I was like, I don't, I don't feel ready. Like I had like a really, really bad breakdown at Revelstoke and, uh, it was just kind of, yeah, I just didn't feel ready. And so I was like, mom, I think I need you to like come out and like drive, Mm -hmm. be like my support vehicle starting in Saskatoon to Winnipeg. So she was there. Like I needed it. Like it was, it was just so hard 
to manage it on my own, like just the ups and downs. And I love the physical, the physical challenge was amazing. Like I loved it. I was so happy to get on the bike every day mm-hmm. and just like explore and like push myself physically and, and see new, meet new people, see new towns. And just like that adventure is just amazing as you know, mm-hmm. but it was the mental side that I was just, it was, it was just too much for me. Yeah. So that whole, like, I really struggled with that, you know, not feeling like I was doing the true experience, but cause I, I camped like I, I camped from like Toronto to Moncton. So that was like a month, yeah. like on and off, yeah. not a, definitely not every night. And that was great. Like I did it, but it was really hard on me. Like yeah. it, I got, I got into some really bad situations mentally, like crisis situations, side of the road, freaking out, crying, like yelling, you know, like, yeah, it was intense. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and then like it happened, so, like, it happened enough times. And the, like the, the worst time was in the gas bay in Quebec. Cause I wanted to go all the way around the gas bay and I made it like three quarters of the way around. And I, and I had this huge breakdown. It was very high risk for me and I got through it that night and like used my tools that I used in my crisis situation. Why am I putting myself through this? Like this is like, it's just, it's ridiculous that I'm putting myself through so much pain because I feel like my trip has to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And the next when I woke up, I was like, all right, screw this. I'm not camping anymore. I'm going to cut across the gas bay down to New Brunswick and I'll just, you know, stay in motels, hotels, the rest of the trip. And I did yeah. So it was a tough bounce. I could see people like I would have seen you on the road with all your bags and stuff. And it would have been like, damn, like, I wish I could do that. And I'd see other people like just like even, you know, more extreme, like these horrible like setups on their bikes, but just like so sketchy. But they're camping and cooking and everything. And I'm like, I just I was like, I wish so badly I could do that. But I tried and I just couldn't. And so eventually I just was like, you know what? my ride is totally different. Yeah. Like, you know, like, and I just can't compare myself. Like yeah. this is what I have and I can't compare it. And so, yeah, I just eventually accepted that. And I was like, all right, screw this. I'm going to do my own thing. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was good. A couple things I want to say to that one being, I think, and I think you put, you've hit the nail on the head. I don't think there is a true experience to, to doing a ride yeah. like that. <laughs> everyone, everyone's different. I camped maybe seven times <laughs> the entire time. So, oh, really? yeah, oh, yeah, I had plenty of places to stay. Uh, but also, I think that just the, what a great picture that is of uh, wanting to do something yourself and on your own and realizing, yeah, you know, it's a foolish thing <laughs> to to want to take things on on our own. I think for anything, like what a good lesson of, of how important uh, support is to be able to yeah. to do what you want to do. Uh, it takes a team. I don't think there is an individual effort for something like that or, or anything, anything great that you're trying to do. It, it, it is a team effort. Um, totally. When it comes down to it. Can't agree more. One of the things that I admire most about you and about your story and the way that you did this ride and, and continue to handle yourself is that I think it's very easy, or I should say it's much easier for somebody to talk about mental health as if it's totally in the past. It's kind of packaged up and this was this particular time in my life and I'm I'm through it now and I'm on the other side and and look at me all polished and presentable and, yeah. and great. I think what you've done, which is, is so uh, commendable, is be able to talk about yourself as an ongoing process of, yeah, I'm still dealing yeah. with these things. Tell me about yeah. that, maybe the importance of doing that for you, why you 
why that was, if it was a deliberate choice and, and how that's played out for you. Honestly, it's really simple. It's because I still do. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like I can't go a week without getting to some situation mentally. And it's incredibly, I don't even get frustrated anymore. It's just like, it's just like, God, like again, like it's just, and, and like I've, I, I fully accept my bipolar. I fully accept everything. I have nothing to hide, but, and I have all these tools, but doesn't stop it, you know? Hmm. And I take medication and some people take medication and everything goes away. And like, I think that's amazing. Like that's really lucky. I, that hasn't happened to me yet. Hope, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But if, if I'm not like, I could easily just be like, you know what? I'm, this is too much. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to break up with my girlfriend. I, I get too much anxiety about her. Um, I get too much social anxiety with all my friends. I'm just going to hang out, you know, watch movies, you know, do something that's not going to push me. And that's not going to be tough mentally. Yeah. But it'll still happen. I'll, these, these, these mood swings, the depression, the anxiety, the suicidal thoughts, the hopelessness and the helplessness, they still happen. So like, what's the point to giving up and, um, and like really being a victim? Mm. Like that's like, it's like, what's the point? Like if you're, if you're going to give up and be a victim, you're wasting, wasting time, you're wasting your potential. So my, my mindset is like, okay, this stuff is going to happen. Like this week has been incredibly challenging for me mentally and it's happening. But like when it happens, okay, you're, it's happening. This is where I'm at. What do I have to do? You know? Okay. Let's talk. Let's call my mom, call my girlfriend. Okay. That helps. Okay. What else can I do? Let's uh, eat some comfort food. Okay. That helps a little bit, but not much, but like I'm doing, it's like, you know, let's watch a funny TV show. Let's do some social anxiety tools. If I'm in a social situation, let's work out. Let's get a good sleep. Let's get a good meal. Let's stay hydrated. Let's take anti-anxiety medication. It's just like all these things you can do and they don't, necessarily make it go away mm-hmm. but they help you manage that situation so you can still like like live like you can still you know be somewhat effective yeah but um yeah it's like it's like i have to keep working because if i don't i'll just you know i get scared about like what would happen if i stopped being so proactive like if i just was in a bad spot and my girlfriend said something or did something and i just lashed out because mm-hmm. i was so freaking worked up and and then and that could seriously affect the relationship and then that could be over even though I love her so much or I do the same thing with my, my family or my job, my employer or whatever. It's just not worth it. Like it's just so important to like stay focused on like what's happening, how am I feeling and what do I have to do about it? What's, how am I feeling? What do I have to do about it? How am I feeling? It's just like that cycle. Yeah. So then you don't get so caught up in, in the irrational thinking and behaviors. Yeah. Uh, you have to listen to yourself because you know, like yesterday I was feeling horrible at work. Like, in the clouds mentally so in such a low mood and i said it's probably not best for me to be at the office right now so i said i'm gonna work from home fortunately my employer is is is, um, supportive of that and i went home but that's like listening to yourself Mm -hmm. you know so yeah all that kind of stuff you talk often about tools in your toolbox that you're able to pull out and use in those times when you're recognizing that you're kind of entering a, a space where you need to do some self-care or work on whatever you're going through. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about those tools, what they are, and what they do for you? Yeah, I think the most important thing when it comes to tools is to understand your mood. So what are the main things that you deal with? Okay, you have social anxiety, perfect. You have general anxiety, okay. You have depression, okay. If you have PTSD, okay. 
irritability, anger, frustration, loneliness. Just like identify the mood or the whatever you want to address, okay? So then social anxiety is one for me and lots of people. Okay, social anxiety. What does what does that feel like? You know, what are the triggers of social anxiety? You know, parties, public speaking, interviews, whatever. Okay, so those are the triggers that tend to cause social anxiety. So let's be aware of those mm-hmm. so that when I know they're coming, I can prepare myself. And when they're happening, I can then start being proactive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you have your triggers. So understand those. And then what happens to you when you're socially anxious? Well, I have racing thoughts. I have thoughts of shame, guilt. I feel I get red in my face. Mm-hmm. My heartbeat goes up. Okay, so those are my cues. So now that I know when I'm socially anxious, I can be aware of it, and then I can use tools to manage it. So you know your triggers. You know what causes it. You know your cues, which is when you know when you're in it, and now you have your tools for when you're in that situation and you have to manage it mm-hmm. and start being proactive. And the tools are the coping mechanisms. So that takes time to figure out what works for you. You know, it's a, it's a big trial and error. It's like, okay, um, speaking slowly really helps me when I'm socially anxious because it slows things down. So that, that's a tool that I know works well. Splashing water in my face in the bathroom if I'm at a party, that calms me down in a social situation. There, like there's tons, like mm-hmm. meditation, mindfulness. Oh, one of the other great ones for social anxiety is like to force yourself to not talk. Because... So many times when we're socially anxious, we're like, I'm not talking enough, I'm not interesting. So then go to a party and try your best not to talk and see what happens. <laughs> I guarantee someone's going to come up to you and start talking and it won't be forced and it'll just happen. You start talking and then another person, it just kind of happens. And like, I do that all the time and it's amazing because you, I get so in my head about I'm not talking enough that if I try not to talk, I realize that like maybe it's only a minute that I didn't talk. Mm. And then someone, then then a topic comes up where I feel like I can actually contribute, mm-hmm. and then I and then I talk. But when you're socially anxious, you're feeling like you're never talking enough. For example, or people are always looking at you, mm-hmm. so you're, you're you're saying things that are forced and don't make sense and not funny. Yeah. But if you take a step back, and that's just social anxiety. You do the same thing for when you're depressed. Figure out the tools that work for you that make you feel better. Yeah. Calm you down. Don't put any ice on your neck. Helps in a lot of mental situations and. Talking about how you're feeling helps in every single situation, like without a doubt. Like even just before an interview, being like, "Hey, mom, I'm really anxious." Mm. "Hey, coworker, I'm really anxious for this presentation." "Hey, I'm really depressed right now." Well, you have to say that, like, "Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling so hot. I'm feeling pretty down." Mm-hmm. Like that alone, just like taking the pain out of you and exposing it to someone else, makes you feel better. Like mm. may not be a lot, but it helps in the long run, guaranteed. I want to get into some of that. The social anxiety one is one that I definitely can relate to and, and recognize in my own self. In, in, in the history of being a broadcaster is a weird one to have to deal with in having to literally <laughs> go out and talk to people and uh, initiate conversations and all of that. But on a bike ride that you're doing, uh, interviews and public speaking, two things that you are forcing yourself to do as you're biking across the country. How does that play out? Being a guy who's socially anxious, continually thrusting yourself into in front of microphones and in front of audiences to to tell your story. Mm-hmm. It was hard at first, but the more I did it, the more comfortable I got. And you know, I have a, I'm doing a fair amount of public speaking these days. Yeah. And yeah, I get nervous every time. But that's just instincts. If you're not nervous, you don't care. Yeah. That's my logic. Yeah. And every time I, I question 
I'm going to be like, I always think this is the time I'm going to really mess up. This is the time I'm going to stutter. This is the time I'm going to blank. But then like that is your cue. Like those thoughts are your cues that you're in a socially anxious state. So it's like, okay, these are happening. These thoughts are coming up. What do I have to do in this situation? Okay. I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes. I'm going to put cold water on my face. And that just helps snap you out of it. And it may come up again and you use it, use the tools again, right up until the event. Mm -hmm. And you may not like, it's, it's just funny because people get so caught up in like, you know, I'm feeling whatever mental health issue and I can't perform or whatever, whatever. And I get sometimes it can be totally debilitating. Like I've been there, but I think a lot of the times is like you, no matter like how you're feeling, if you have the right tools in place and you talk about it and all these things, you can be good enough. You can do this presentation. You can finish this report. You can do this interview. You can finish the bike ride. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of like using those tools to set you up for success yeah. in that in that state because everything is totally possible. And that's what I've been learning is like I have had to do presentate public speaking events when I've been so depressed, like in Regina, Saskatchewan, for example. I was so I was like in the car with my mom, my head between my knees, take a deep breath, and I was like, okay. And obviously, I've told her how I'm feeling. Deep breath, deep breath. Okay, let's be mindful. Let's try to do some meditation, whatever. I went in and. I just, I did it and it was, it wasn't like I was super polished or anything, but I did it and I was fine yeah. and people liked it. And so you can be good enough. And that's one of the things on this ride that I've gotten more comfortable with for public speaking is that no matter how you're feeling, if you're authentic and you have a plan about what you're talking about, mm. then you're able to manage it and get by. Like, you know, I think with public speaking, like one of the biggest reasons for people to be socially anxious is because they're not prepared. Yeah. And when you, when you have a plan in place, like all these talks I do, none of them are the same. Yeah. They all have the same skeleton, yeah. but like none of them are the exact same. So I go in and if like the other day I did one in in, uh, in Guelph, Southern Ontario, and I was so nervous. Like I was in the room sitting at like, one of the round tables being like, holy crap, I have no idea how this is going to go. <laughs> and I was like, I got to do something about this. So I went, I went to like, I left the the, the the room I went into like a separate little office meeting room and I meditated for 10 minutes thinking about what I'm going to say how am I going to open it how am I going to how am I going to close what are the main points I want to get across how am I going to make it effective how am I going to make it funny and I thought about that stuff and I created a plan and then I went out and I executed that plan and it was amazing uh -huh. but I was nervous because I didn't have a plan and I think that has a big problem with, with social anxious with social anxiety but yeah I mean I think that's kind of the, the summary of it. Over time, I've gotten more comfortable, and I've also realized no matter how you're feeling with the right tools, you can be good enough, and to make sure you have a plan. For for something more structured, if like you have a formal interview with someone, yeah. like not like this, then have a plan. Like You've obviously had questions prepared. That probably made you feel better. And it doesn't make everything go away, but it makes, makes things more manageable. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, uh, as you mentioned that, I do, of course, have questions prepared uh, as we were talking my computer's been going through some stuff, and so all those questions just wiped off the screen. So we've just, we've just been improvising. But I, I know you well enough. I know, I know your story that I'm not worried about it. You know, I think there's so much to connect to and, and relate to already. I want to talk more about some of the elements of the ride. You're going across the country. What are the things, what's the food that you begin to crave as you're going across the country? Uh, Snickers. Snickers. Bars. <laughs> Protein shakes, I got, I got on for a while. Yeah. Uh, oh, energy bar, like power bar, like cliff bars, just love those. Yeah. 
I like I at the beginning I ate like junk after the ride after the day I'd eat like yeah. you know A&W like yeah. pop and cones and blizzards and I just realized how bad that was for me because I would feel so crappy after mm. and so then I would like by the end I was eating I think I was eating pretty good like I was eating a lot of energy bars yeah. but the mornings would be like a big omelet like pancakes and stuff to get a lot of carbs yeah. and then you know lunch would always be like Tim Hortons breakfast sandwiches or McDonald's breakfast sandwiches and nighttime would be like a big dinner, Yeah, you know? So, and yeah, (laughs) I I think I ate pretty well. The Snickers bars is probably Snickers bars and chocolate milk are probably like the best things. Yeah. That, that, can you you appreciate (laughs) that? You can can relate Uh, to that. Well, I think, I think we had opposite ends of the spectrum. I think I started healthy intentions. I was going to do nothing but trail mix and, (laughs) and uh like pepperettes okay but then a few days into the ride i met a guy and he had skittles in his bag and he offered me some skittles and that was kind of like the slippery slope for me to then go out and buy powdered donuts and um and for me really it was basically anytime i would pass a mcdonald's not to turn this into a mcdonald's commercial but because there's i know there's wi-fi and I know that there's like cheap ice cream. So it'll be a ice cream cones from McDonald's or it'll be a milkshake or there'll be a 7-Eleven Slurpee uh, sometimes in the same day. So it would be that kind of stuff for me. It would be, be kind of the sweet stuff that I would gravitate towards candy, uh, whatever it was at the end of the ride that I would, uh, that I would go for. That's so funny. <laughs> what, was, what was the most <laughs> indulgent day for you where you're feasting, like the biggest feast that you had on the ride? Oh man, I went pretty hard at Tim Hortons sometimes after the ride. Like I would just get like, you know, pack of Timbits, cookies, like a smoothie. I don't know. Like that's not even that bad. I feel. No, well, that sounds great. pretty modest. <laughs> I, like after doing uh, Rogers Pass in yeah. uh, Stoke yeah. to Golden, yeah. I went and my dad and I had like a large blizzard, and uh, I had like fries and stuff, yeah. but. I don't know. I th- I indulge at breakfast. I would go hard at breakfast. I'd get like two main, like two full servings of breakfast. Like like I said, like omelet, toast, hash browns, and like a huge serving of pancakes if they had that. So I indulge there pretty hard. But I was always thinking, I was like, is this gonna be? Is this gonna be good for me? And I was like, is this gonna be? I always think like, is this gonna set me up for success, mm-hmm. or am I gonna feel like crap? Like eating a lot of sugar is not good for me because I crash and I feel like crap mm-hmm. mentally. So it's like what's the point you know it's gonna taste good for like and i'll like it for like 10 minutes but then i'll feel like crap and it's not worth it mm-hmm. not to say that i didn't you know treat myself but yeah, yeah. that's probably <laughs> good good answers i so as you're going across i think one of the most special things about doing a ride uh, in the way that you did it is again because you can't do something like this on your own you are relying on other people and meeting other people uh, and part of you know sharing your story is just hearing other people's stories, getting to know people better in places that you wouldn't otherwise stay because of yep. the pace of just going across the country on a bicycle. Sometimes you have to stop in small town in the middle of nowhere. What are the what are some of the ones that come to mind of, of the most memorable human encounters that you had along your journey? Okay, yeah, there's definitely a lot. I one of the most impactful was I was in the Fraser Valley in BC and I was biking along Highway 1 in TransCanada and I was finishing the day and it was like just a steady climb all the way from 
the val- like from like Vancouver area, should steady climb all the way up. So I was getting pretty tired. It was like my f- fifth or sixth day in a row. And so I actually had stopped at a gas station and got some Snickers bars and whatever. And like just pulling out of the gas station, you know, turning right to go f- up the road, uh, this, this huge white pickup truck with a dirt bike in the back, like right by me. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, holy, like, geez. And then all of a sudden he whipped over on the side of the road, like skidded out on the side of the road where the gravel was. Like it was like all this dust was going everywhere. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, like this guy must be pissed or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just, I just kept biking kind of confused. My hotel was maybe like a couple of kilometers up the road. So I'm kind of checked out and all of a sudden this arm like sticks out at me. I'm like, oh great. And so I like bike up on the driver's side and he was far enough over that I wasn't on the road. And he, the door like swings open and all I see is like this guy hunched over with his head pressed against the steering wheel. And uh, he's kind of just like shaking a little bit and I have no idea what's going on. And all of a sudden he like looks over at me and his eyes are just bloodshot and he's just bawling his eyes out. And I was just like, holy, like, I don't know what to say. And he's crying and mm-hmm. finally he says, he saw my jersey. My jersey says Cycling Canada for Mental Health mm-hmm. on the back. Mm-hmm. So he said, he said, I just want to, you know, thank you for what you're doing. You know, I've been dealing with PTSD my entire life. I've seen some horrible things I wish I never saw, but I just can't, I just, I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with it. I'm just in so much pain. Um, I don't know how to talk about it. And um, he said, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. And I just was kind of sitting there just in shock. And, and, th- and as soon as he drove away, I was like, this is exactly why I'm doing this ride so that people can start feeling comfortable talking about their mental health. Mm. So that was incredible. And it was just funny that happened on the first week of the ride and like nothing that intense mm-hmm. happened after that. But there was things like really other amazing things. Like when I was in, I was biking into Regina, it was like 150 kilometer a day. So it was on the longer side for me. Mm-hmm. And it was a direct headwind all day, like same direction biking, same direction of the wind all day. And I got like 30 kilometers in. I was averaging like, did you have a computer on your bike? Well, yeah, that told, told me average speed, yeah. 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 So I was going like 12 kilometers an hour, yeah. like just like crawling. And I got like 30 kilometers and it was over two and a half hours. Yeah. And my mom was with me at the time and I was so pissed off. I was so frustrated. I was like yelling and screaming like, oh my God. Like I was listening to like Eminem, like in my <laughs> headphones just because I was so pissed. I was like trying to get motivated to keep going. It was so brutal. And then I got to like 90 kilometers eventually and we were pulled over and there was like this, this girl, she was like in her like low 20s in a big camper van waiting uh, on the side of the road. And my mom by chance pulled up beside her to wait for me uh-huh. where, where she was going to meet me for lunch. So there, there, there they are. And they're not even talking at that point. And I pull up. I'm talking to my mom. The girl comes over. She's like, oh, like, are you guys like biking? Like, I was like, yeah, I'm biking across Canada, actually. And um, we start talking. And all of a sudden, this girl's boyfriend rolls up on a bike a couple minutes later. And he pulls up. And they're going across Canada. Yeah. He's biking. She's in the caravan. And we start talking. And this guy, Peter, and I were like, man, like, today is so brutal. Like, holy crap. Yeah. And then we're like, you want to bike all the way to Regina together? And we're like, yep. So then we just biked side by side all the way into Regina. It was like another... 60 kilometers yeah. to get there, 115 total. And he, we just made each other's day. We talked about life. We talked about biking. We talked about everything, you know, the entire way in. And we just, it was just, 
you know what it's like. It's just like when you're on the road like that, you just the connections you make are just so much stronger than you do like, you know, walking down the street, you know, in Toronto or whatever. So it was incredible. It was just one of those amazing memories, and that was that. Was, those two are probably my top. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think there's so many. I don't want to like you know go into too much detail, but. Um, <laughs> It was it was really cool when people would like see me on the side of the road and pull over and be like, hey, like I saw you're that guy that was, mm-hmm. you know, in the news or I follow you on Instagram or whatever. And like that was just like that would make me feel so good, especially after a long day. Someone's like, hey, like I recognize you. Like here's some money. Like here's like a hundred bucks. And it's just like it's unreal. Like, I mean, it just like boosts your spirits so much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like even in Newfoundland, like I got invited over to, for dinner to two to two people's places separate nights. Because uh, they they heard about what I'm doing and I was talking to them, mm-hmm. just like the hospitality there was incredible, like absolutely amazing. Newfoundland was so unique, nowhere else like it in Canada, not even close. Maybe Cape Breton a little bit, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's just an amazing place. The people there, that's where I had so many good interactions. Newfoundland, yeah. yeah. So I know that before your ride started, the plan was to do like 150, 170 kilometers a day. At least that's what you were yeah. telling Ben. Uh, how, how how did that play out once you got on the road? Did, did that change? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I averaged like 130. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, yeah probably between like 120, 135. Like if it was a 180, I'd have to like get like mentally prepared, yeah. like really good sleep, like load up on food. And I probably had that mindset anywhere from like 160 to 180. Yeah. I take it more seriously. Yeah. 150 was like, okay, this is like a pretty solid day. And then anywhere from like, yeah, 150, 140 is like solid. Anywhere from like 130 to like 100, I knew would be like totally manageable. Yeah. Like, not manageable, yeah. but I'd be like, okay, this is going to yeah. be like a normal day, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah. It's funny how your normal changes so quickly uh, doing something like that. I know. That. Yeah. And it's funny, like, uh, you know, I have like this little loop that I do in, in uh, Guelph where I grew up mm-hmm. uh, on the road bike and it's 30 kilometers. It takes about an hour mm-hmm. on a road bike. And so whenever I'd be like, you know, 90 kilometers left, I'd be like, okay, three loops of mm-hmm. the, the route back home in Guelph. And that's how I'd like, you know, like you gotta you like break things down in your head. So you can visualize it. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Makes it go by faster. I want to go back to, you were talking about, I mean, people recognizing you or reaching out to you online uh, I mean, a big part of this for you was was a raising awareness, and I think inherent in any time that you're going to be sharing your story and being so public about it, you're going to have people sharing their stories with you, whether they're messaging oh, you yeah. on Instagram or wherever, um, yeah. which I think is both a tremendous honor that people are doing that, but it can also be difficult to handle for your own well-being to be able to have yeah. a, a burden like that of of so many stories to, to come at you. Um, yeah. how do you, how do you handle disclosures like that? How have you managed to, um, to manage your own well being in getting, uh, other stories coming your way? I think for me, like I never respond to stuff. Someone's like opens up like personally, like a personal, you know, disclosure, I guess to me, like I never respond if I'm in a bad state. Mm. I always try to do that when I'm good and rested and stuff so I can, you know, say the right things that I think are right. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly it's just listening. It's just like, someone's like, yeah, like I really, people, like people want to meet with me and like sit down and grab a coffee. And like, I'm like, oh great. Like they want to understand how I manage my mental health. They want to like pick my brain, like kind of like we're doing today, but like these tools and the cues, the triggers and all that stuff. But that never happens. 
only thing people want to do is talk, talk about how they're feeling. Mm. And so at first I was like kind of frustrated. I was like, well, I, th- what? I thought they want to sit down and talk about me. <laughs> and, and now I'm realizing like it's happened so many times, yeah. like Instagram, in person, over a coffee, phone call, whatever, email. It's like people want to talk about them, like what's going on in their life. And, and, and now like I'm just realizing it's like that was the point of the ride. Mm. It's about other people opening up. And like I had like so many people open up to me like on the ride, mm-hmm. like ridiculous. And it took me a long time, like not even until recently to be like mission accomplished. Like that's exactly what I wanted to do. And yeah, I'd get frustrated at the beginning. I'd be like, why, well, why don't you want to talk about how I can manage effectively? Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to help you, but no, like people just want to talk. It's like, it's just funny. Like in Canada, like people are so desperate to talk, but there's just no outlet for them, hmm. for them to do that unless they see like a therapist or something. Mm-hmm. So for the majority of people who don't see therapists, there's no outlet for them to do it in a, in a really authentic way where they can just let it all out. So I was like this little outlet that people could go to whenever they met me. Mm-hmm. And people would open up Milton Hortons, McDonald's, yeah. side of the road, you know, hotel lobby, you know, whatever. Like it, it was just incredible. It's just how, it's just amazing how desperate people are to talk. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pump your tires for a moment. I know uh, part of this is the fundraising element. And when you set off your, I think your initial goal you started. You said it at a hundred thousand, but then you're going to bring it back down to something like fifteen, right? 15, make it yeah. make it more make it more manageable and achievable. Uh, lo and behold, this thing, people responded in in really responded yeah. to your story. By the end of the ride, you ended up raising over a hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which is just phenomenal to think yeah. about, especially from a guy you know talking about how how hard it might have been for you to even talk about mental health a short while ago. Uh, in the span yep. of a lifetime. Can you speak to yeah. the, the power of the response that you got across the country? Yeah, I think it's like, I think the authenticity was the key. The lived experience, like coming from me, who is dealing with this stuff, and the authenticity being so open about it, like that was a huge driver for, for success for this ride. You know, like, there's a lot of good mental health initiatives going on. And I'm not to like say that mine was like the most successful one, because it's not at all. But I think good mental health initiatives, the most successful ones, are the ones where authenticity, openness are at the core of what the, the initiative is trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know? Like if I wasn't authentic about how I'm feeling, I just want to buy Cross Canada to raise awareness, then the outcome could have been different. But I think when you throw in the lived experience, um, and the authenticity and the full exposure, like everyone, everyone in my life knows what I deal with, you know? Mm-hmm. And so therefore they want to help, you know, they want to support me. And that was, that was huge. So it's just the authenticity was, uh, like when I think of mind cycle, I think of authenticity, mm-hmm. you know, that was what I tried to do from day one. Before you set out on a bike ride, like the one that you did, uh, you, you, it's hard to know how your life is going to change afterwards. Yeah. Lo and behold, now you have a new career that you wouldn't have even imagined uh, before starting this ride. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tell me about the work that you're doing now with uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association, how that came about, and, and what excites you about what you're doing. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, as soon as I started doing public speaking, and I realized that the more involved I am in mental health, the stronger I get. I like sharing my story. I like helping people. I was like, okay, I need to think about this as a career because why would I not want to do something that makes me feel better mm. or stronger? 
And once my parents were on the road with me and they saw me do public speak, I got to public speaking in almost every major city. And once they were with me, they were like, and I told them, I was like, look how strong this makes me feel. Like I walk away from the public speaking and feeling like so much stronger. And I told them that I want to make a career in mental health. And then both of them are just like, that makes sense. Like for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Given my dad owns a family business that he's been trying to get me into for years. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, the job kind of, so I fundraised for CMHA National, Canadian Mental Health Association. Um, I met the CEO of our national charity in Winnipeg by chance. He was at the branch I was visiting when I w- went in there to do a tour and at the CMHA branch. And we got talking and I was like, yeah, I really want to get involved in mental health. I want to make a career. And he's like, well, you could become like a peer support worker. You could become, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of peer support person. And I was like, yeah, like, I guess, but like, that's not where I see myself fitting in, mm-hmm. in my head. So time went on and I did a talk with Bank of Montreal at their head office here downtown. And uh, I'm just seeing if I can see their building. And um, the CEO of our national charity came to the talk. Mm-hmm. So he heard about it and he was coming. He saw me do the talk. And afterwards, he's like, hey, I think that you should come back to our office and just meet everyone. And I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds terrific. Mm-hmm. And then the cab or the taxi on the way there, he starts talking about how amazing the culture is, the work environment, yada, yada, yada. Uh-huh. And he says, you know, we're, we've been working on this youth initiative for the past year, and it's finally coming together. We're just going to start kind of recruiting for it, and we think you'd be a good person to take it over. And I'm like, well, hell yeah, because... <laughs> I want to I want to help youth. That's where I am right now. I'm a young adult, yeah. and that's where I want to make impacts. And and so, I was like, 100. Let's let's talk more. So then, then I kept biking. Like I biked, you know, a week or so to, up to Montreal. And by the time I got to Montreal, I was on the phone with the CEO and my now boss, talking about the more details of the of the job. And and they offered me offered me the job not too long after that, and I signed the contract when I was in Quebec. So for me, I spent the whole ride just being like, oh my God, like I'm creating this whole vision of my job now and my career in mental health mm-hmm. and where I'm going to go and all these things. And now I'm here and I've started the job, been here for about a month and a half and I'm still doing a lot of public speaking. They've given me like free reign on like this project to work on that I've called Mind Strong, Mind Strong. And I've just been kind of plugging away at that. Like it's it's uh, it's all about creating a community of mental health champions. Mm-hmm. So mental health champions are people that just want to step up and own what they're dealing with, collaborate with each other to become more effective managers and, and really you know set them up for success moving forward. And I'm just going to do my best with this whole project I'm working on and see where it goes. I've, I'm trying to figure out how best to close this off. What would you say to somebody who is listening to this and... Um... And maybe he hasn't gotten to that place yet of being able to talk about what they're going through, or they're they're seeing a friend and they don't know, necessarily know how to uh, how to be the best support they can for their friend or their family member. All right, first part would be someone that's struggling. I would say to fully just acknowledge what's happening. Like, how are you actually feeling? Like, what does it feel like? Like, what do you think you're dealing with? Okay, so acknowledge it and accept that it's happening and own it. Okay, this is my problem. You know, no one's going to solve this for me. No, people can help, but ultimately this is my problem. And now what can I do to start managing this? So, okay, so let's read some books about what I'm dealing with. Is it anxiety? Okay, great. Let's read some stuff online. Let's schedule a post with my doctor. Let's look into some counseling. If you're low on budget, there's free services. Um, if not, you can do a therapist, psychologist, talk to a psychiatrist if you want to go that route. 
and be patient. Like it takes time to find the tools that are going to help you. Um, you just have to be patient. And if you're if you're struggling, one thing I have to say to you is is that I dare you to pick one person in your life to talk to, a friend, family member. And when you talk to them, be honest. Like be authentic. That's what helps people understand and be compassionate of your situation. So own it, accept it, and start start finding the tools that are going to help you. Reach out. And I, and I dare you to pick one person to talk to because I can guarantee you're going to you're talk to one person, it's going to feel great. You're going to tell another person, another person, all of a sudden you're going to have this big support network of people that can help you mm-hmm. because then you're not alone. In terms of other people who know that someone else is struggling, I think the biggest thing is just if someone, if, you're, if you have you know, severe depression or something and, and you're aware of it, and if you're aware of it and I'm, trying to, I'm your best friend trying to help you, it's like, okay. I think the most important thing is like just letting constantly letting them know that you're there. Hey, like, how you feeling today? Like, is there anything I can do to help? Or just checking in, you know, that goes a long way. But also, like, you you don't want to shove stuff down their throat. It's not like I think, hey, you know, I think you should do this, John. I think you should do this, Bill. Like, whatever. It's sitting down with someone and and sitting down with them. And be like, okay, look, it's it seems like this is going on. What do you think would be a good way to approach this? Like, I want to support you. I'm your biggest supporter, and I want to help you. So what do you think we should do here? And then that empowers the person to think of the ways that are going to help them. It's not someone telling them what to do. Mm. And then if you're helping, if you want to help someone that doesn't even know what's happening, which is probably the hardest situation, it's so hard. And it's like one of the questions I got asked the most. But I think one of the best things is to empower that person. Like, hey, look, just from my perspective, it seems like you're kind of going through something or like this is going on. I could be wrong, but I just want to let you know that if you ever need someone to talk to, if you ever want support, if you ever want to just like chat it out, I'm here for you 100%. I'll never understand it 100%, but I will be for you, be here for you 100%. And I want you to know that. And just like kind of reminding them of that every once in a while, mm-hmm. because that can go a long way. And it's like they're not ready to be, they're not ready to hear about their tools and their options and all that stuff. They just need to like, slowly start figuring out that this is actually happening to them and and then that 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 they know that you're there to support them and you guys can hopefully work together to come up with a with a plan thank you so much i'm really glad we can make this happen that was good That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor and hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and tell someone else you think might enjoy the show. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. This episode was produced by Emma Terrell. Theme music for the podcast is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.